0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Policing, Incarceration, and Reform. My name is Jeff Lamson, and today we'll be talking with Dr. Emily Brooks about her new book, Gotham's War Within a War, Policing and the Birth of Law and Order Liberalism in World War II-era New York City, which is now out with the University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Brooks is a historian and full-time curriculum writer at the New York Public Library Center for Educators and Schools. Her work has previously been published with the Journal of Urban History, Washington Post, the Journal of Policy History, among other places, and she's held fellowships from Mellon, ACLS, and New York Public Library's research, New York Public Library Center for Research in the Humanities. Dr. Brooks, welcome to New Book Network.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Jeff.
1: My pleasure. Um, So we always begin uh, by asking if you would tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to studying the history of policing, as well as the origin story of this book in particular, and your focus on New York City.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, So I would say even before I went to graduate school for um, a PhD in history, I was um, interested in Um, criminal justice reform. I worked at an organization um, that was involved in drug policy reform. Um, And so those kinds of issues and questions, questions about mass incarceration, about racist and racialized policing, questions about the role of the punitive state in American life at home and around the world, all of these were questions that I was interested in um, exploring when I started graduate school. Um, And I began kind of reading and researching on those themes and was really interested in a lot of work that was coming out about um, women's experiences of policing and criminalization um, in the kind of post-reconstruction to early 20th century North in urban areas. Um, And as somebody who has always lived in cities, I've been interested in urban history since before I really kind of understood um, that as a subfield. So um, I started kind of exploring those themes and found that a lot of that work um, ended in the beginning of the 1930s. Um, And then there was also a lot of kind of exciting work that was coming out um, about the rise of mass incarceration and how we can kind of understand that. Um, And so I was interested in exploring kind of what was happening in the intermedium area um, in the years in between that kind of early period where there was an explosion of research and the later years. um, And I was in graduate school in New York City um, and, you know, kind of saw the I felt like I experienced and saw all around me the impact of police on urban life um, and came to understand the sort of role of the NYPD in municipal police departments across the country. And so I started kind of being interested in researching on those themes. Um, and then while I was in graduate school, I also um, taught a lot at um different CUNY schools, in, including community colleges, um, which I also feel like kind of brought in my research focus, allowed me to think about things in different ways and really um, enrich the way that I was thinking about engaging with history. Um, And so so I finished my PhD in 2019, um, and since then was kind of working on putting this book proposal and the book together. Um, And yeah, so here I am.
1: (laughs) So it's actually a really great segue into one of the questions that I have, um, because you mentioned sort of your your experience reading about the history of policing and the temporality of it—that a lot of it took place leading up to 1930, and then sort of toward what some you know the punitive turn or, or around the 1960s or so—and um, another way to think about that is breaking it up as as pre-war and post-war. But but your book is very much about New York City and policing there during World War II. Um, and so, can you talk a little bit about the that particular sort of? time frame as being really important what it meant for the nation to be at war as it was impacting policing.
0: Yeah, I mean when I first started doing that research I was so surprised to see how much language and concern and energy was devoted to um perceptions of crime and criminality in the city during the war and so how there was this um the the kind of language, both the metaphor of war in talking about crime and policing at home. So so, you know, the title of the book comes from a letter from a magistrate to Merrill LaGuardia saying we have a war within a war against juvenile delinquency at home. Um, And and then they're always talking about a war on prostitution. Um, The way that the war um, really invigorated these concerns about dynamics, um, behaviors, and what I argue in the book, kind of groups of people who before the war were seen as um, kind of problems of urban order. During the war, they are sort of reframed as problems of national security. Um, And it's both because, you know, the war is like... (sighs) it's a massively destabilizing and changing moment in all these elements of American life. So you have, you know, a huge percentage of the civilian population is moving during the war. Um, as you know, many historians have looked at and talked about, um, you know, men are being drafted. Women are moving into manufacturing in new and varied ways, depending on where they live and who they are. Um, but so there's all of this, concerned that these changes are gonna kind of produce new forms of criminality, like for juvenile delinquency, the idea that nobody's at home and so kids are just kind of out on the streets doing what they will. Um, But it also produces these, um, you know, new opportunities for changing social dynamics that are very concerning to um, the city's administrators, to um, the kind of law enforcement um, entities both in the city and nationwide. So there's real there's anxiety that men are are interacting with women. That there's going to be white men who are going to be going out and meeting black women, meeting Puerto Rican women. That there's going to be interracial socializing and potentially sexual activity. um That women are taking on new responsibilities. They're out on the streets in new ways, and that's problematic. Um, so, in a way, so some of the new kind of attention to um, law enforcement and policing during the war is about these like moments of social change and energy and and flux. And you also have, of course, mass mobilization um, and energy to call out the hypocrisy of requiring Black Americans to serve for um, in the military in a war that's being labeled as a war for democracy at the same time that they don't have full democratic citizenship rights at home um, and are discriminated against in the workplace and in many other arenas. Um, but so there's like, part of it can, was, is about these new dynamics um, and sort of stemming those tides. But then there's also what I saw, and part of the reason that my book is not just about the World War II years, but is about this whole period when LaGuardia and his police commissioner, Louis Valentine, are in office, from 1934 to 1945, is that what I saw in New York, which was really interesting to me, is that they had actually been trying to push forward these kind of modes of policing since they came into office in the 1930s, this new intensified surveillance, this new um, criminalization or intensified criminalization of women, of young people, of Black New Yorkers, of Puerto Rican New Yorkers, um, all under the guise of saying kind of, we are the police department is now going to be nonpartisan. It's not going to be corrupt. It's going to be aggressive um, and expansive and police the city with kind of new vigor, um, and that that is going to be fair and equitable. But the way that the administrators that the police commissioner directs the off police officers to look for criminality is based on these ideas about race and gender and class. And so you see now that there's this new, um, invigorated attention to policing people along those lines, but throughout the 1930s, it's, you know, it meets with varying degrees of success and it's contested, um, by different groups of people, particularly by groups led by black women. Um, but in the war years, those, again, those issues are reframed. Now, any type of um, mass mobilization in the city could disrupt, um, production. It could disrupt, um, shipping lines going out of the city. And then there's also this intense concern about white enlisted men coming into the city on days off or before they're shipping out and that they're going to engage, they're going to meet women at nightclubs like the Savoy ballroom and potentially contract venereal diseases. And that, that then is going to reduce what they call the man days. Um, That can be used to fight the war. Um, And so so what happens is during the war, these these kind of projects and goals that had been important to LaGuardia and Valentine in the 1930s um, gain new momentum. They gain new political justifications, new support from networks with the military and with the city's health department um, and the federal social protection division. Um, And it becomes harder for people to challenge them, quite frankly, because Um, there's intense pressure to support the war mobilization um, and to contribute in kind of whatever ways that you can. And so you have, um, like I talk about in my chapter discussing gambling, you know, it's like before the war, male gamblers were kind of targeted as like unprotective shirkers, lazy. But during the war, you have neighbors, people writing in about their own neighbors saying, I saw so-and-so gambling on the street. Um, why is he not drafted? Or I think he has—he's um, using too many gas rations to get around. Does he have some kind of special um, dispensation for the war? Why is he not sacrificing in the same way that I am? Um, so it changes a lot of these dynamics, um, and I think uh, bolsters the punitive policing state at home.
1: So uh, so much of that is about the politics of policing, right? And so you have this line in the book where you talk about policing is less a response to crime than quote, an expression of political priorities of governing elites. And and one of the things that I really loved about reading your book is that you make this point really clearly that the impactful relationship that we need to study here is not the relationship between policing and crime, but the relationship between policing and politics. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about, about that approach of seeing policing through politics? Um, and, and here you might also emphasize the LaGuardia and Valentine as political actors in this moment, the way that they're using the police force in a way um, for, for a particular set of political priorities.
0: Yeah. So I feel like when I started writing this book, I thought I was writing a social history of policing during the war. And then when I finished, I re- or, or sort of through the writing process, I was like, oh, this is really a social and political history of really? policing throughout the 1930s and the 1940s. And it was kind of like the further along I got in the project, the um, more prominent the theme about politics became because it just was so apparent to me, um, the role that policing played in LaGuardia's kind of vision of what a reform government could mean in this moment um, and and how his vision of sort of government's responsibility to its citizens was reflected through the policing practices. And I think that that's something that people had up until now. Now uh, um, some other historians as well are kind of revisiting this policing in this moment. Um, But, you know, LaGuardia has been a very influential New York City mayor for many years. You know, the New York Times a couple months ago had an article about how he was the last popular mayor um, and he of course had a national profile as well. He was a, a congressman beforehand. Um, he was the head of the National Conference of Mayors for many years. Um, and, and he had a kind of particular relationship with the federal government. Um, and so his vision of kind of urban politics and liberal modes of governing American cities I think is really important. And it was so, um, surprising to me when I was researching this, how I just found that like discussions about crime and policing were everywhere in his, in his speeches and his radio addresses, um, in his, I mean, how he saw this as so important. And when I was doing the research for the book, I felt like I really understood why that was because the old, the when you look at the kind of politics that preceded him, I think it's really important to see, um, understand how that shaped his vision because, you know, he was a reform mayor. So he was reacting to what he came, what came before him. And, um, so he had before LaGuardia comes into office in 1934, we have this kind of mode of policing and city governance that is dominated, not exclusively, but predominantly by a faction of the democratic party called the tammany democrats and it's a very um kind of neighborhood driven um network based ethnic based mode of politics where um what what you can expect to receive from the city government is based on your um personal re- your your neighborhood relationship to the party in power and patronage practices. And we also have um, the the way that the police department is working in this period is as a direct extension of the political party in power. Um, And, you know, policing is still, I, I would argue, extremely political today. But the way that it functions changes really dramatically in the 1930s. And that's kind of what I'm looking at, what I wanted to argue in the book. Um, And so, you know, when the when the first professional NYPD is formed or this first professional police department in the city is formed, it's originally talked about as a jobs program. And that's kind of how it was thought of, how it was thought of. Right. It was a way to give jobs to low level party members and then kind of steer people towards um, supporting the political party, enforce support at elections, um, demand payoffs, and assist different party members. It was, you know, crime was not this kind of central concern, and the and the central way that the the kind of responsibilities of the police department was thought of. Um, but as you know, many historians have looked at. Um, this is a mode of politics that is um, in which corruption is very, very integral part of how the system works. Um, and so, you know, throughout the 1920s, this corruption and police violence, which is very intense during this period, um, both kind of combined to raise the, to strengthen the opposition um, against Tammany. And in New York, city and New York state history, There's a kind of long historical thread in which the city has, was controlled by uh, this faction of the Democratic Party, and the state more often was controlled by Republicans, although not always. And of course, there were efforts, reform and anti-corruption efforts within Tammany and sort of different power struggles, you know, throughout this history, but broad strokes. So, um, So at the end of the 1920s, there as part of this kind of uh, power struggle between Republicans at the state level and Democrats at the city level, um, you get this massive investigation into corruption in um, city politics and in particularly, um, the police department comes becomes a central focus of um, a lot of those investigations and they're very heavily publicized. So it's the front page um, of many of the city's newspapers regularly and these practices become apparent to people about how, you know, police members of the police department were regularly shaking people down. They were regularly framing women for sex work and then extorting them. Um, there was a sort of very well organized network in which that happened, where there were, you know, that involved magistrates, police officers, bail bondsmen, undercover agents, et cetera. Um, and so all of this comes. <coughs> Comes to light. And it's only because of that corruption investigation that this very powerful Democratic faction that had built this pretty significant neighborhood based network throughout the city can be discredited enough that somebody like LaGuardia can win the mayor's election on this kind of fusion um, ticket that has some Republican support and some support from other anti Tammany figures throughout the city. And so when LaGuardia comes into power, he is very much saying that he's going to shape the way that his government works in a different way, that it's not going to be like the Tammany system where you kind of get what you put in for, basically. Um, And so he, you know, has this vision of city government where, um, and this is kind of where I interject the kind of liberal element of this of this political um, project is this idea that there is going to be a kind of an an urban citizenship in which people deserve access to state resources, not based on their um, partisan political connections to the party in power, but based on this idea of kind of rights and citizenship. And so, um, you know, people Should have access to various public services and modes of public life because they are citizens of New York, basically. Um, And he puts that into practice in a lot of different ways. And other historians have looked at some of these. You know, a very he was a big believer in a lot in New Deal programs and put into practice big. public spending that changed the built landscape of the city, that created um a number of different types of public jobs and new types of public arts programs, um, et cetera. But a really important part of how he thought about that mode of urban citizenship was in relation to the police department. And so he has this vision that, um you know, no longer are you going to be able to escape punishment or, um, any type of, um, accountability or surveillance from the police based on, um, your party allegiance or your pay, your ability to pay them off. Um, police are going to be nonpartisan. They're going to be professional. Um, and they're going to enforce, um, particularly vice vice, Um, or crimes of morality throughout the city, because both, as I said previously, you know, the kind of most high profile element of those investigations was about the way that uh, policing for sex crimes of sex work and other crimes of morality or vice was um, an opportunity for corruption. And that is because though in those, um, in those violations or in those, you know, moments of criminality, the only person who is the witness about the supposed crime or violation is the police officer. They're the complainant. Um, you know, it's not the same in, as in a moment in which there's somebody, you know, has been assaulted or robbed or something. And there's a person who is the complainant, um, which is not to say, um, and so these are, these are moments that, are intensely discretionary moments of policing. And I would argue all policing is discretionary, even responses to instances of interpersonal violence. Um, and we could see that today through the ways that um, people, that um, domestic assaults and sexual assaults are policed or not policed. But um, but these instances of vice and crime are um, particularly, you can see, the politics of the police department at play very clearly because they're the only one enacting them. They're the only one who kind of sees the crime and defines it and creates that that moment. Um, and so, LaGuardia says that um, that enforcing crimes of vice and morality is is um, a very important priority of his police department because he and Louis Valentine as well. Um, associated those crimes very closely with police corruption um in some cases right like that's accurate but um so what what emerges from LaGuardia is this mode of policing where um there's very intense surveillance um around justified through the enforcement of these crimes of vice um but that how those crimes are categorized, how police officers are directed to look for them and find them is very based on the identities of the people they're surveilling. Um, and so this is, these years, the early 20th century is a time when particularly the city's black population is increasing really significantly. Um, and LaGuardia has kind of a vision of, you um, racial liberalism in which he um, you know he is opposed to racial discrimination on an individual level and there were some instances where people would write to him um, particularly in neighborhoods that were becoming more interracial or in white neighborhoods that were now um, abutting neighborhoods that were becoming more black People would write to him and complain, um, often about Black children, like white parents would write in, and complain about interactions between their children and Black children. And he would write back in some instances and just say, you know, kids will be kids, like calm down. Um, but he also, for the most part, and he did as well promote, um, you know, he saw the value in um, promoting Black officials in limited capacities to positions in his government, but he didn't see the value in in creating policies um, to actively um, impede or reduce discrimination or to cre- to kind of proactively create equality. Um, and so and he also had these like cultural ideas about crime. So he thought that um, interracial and black communities had more crime because of this kind of vision that he has. And so so he has because he has this perception of kind of racialized modes of crime, even though he's justifying, police activity through ideas of equity. He believes that some areas are more criminal, and so they deserve more police surveillance and um, more intense interactions with the police. Um, And so throughout this period, you kind of have these arguments about equity at the same time as you have very intensely racialized and racist modes of policing um, and the way that they can kind of that they interact together, um, I think is sort of the, the law and order liberalism of it. Um, And his police commissioner is very um, supportive of, and very instrumental in kind of crafting that vision, which also involves promoting Black members of the police department in very limited ways. Um, And then kind of talking about how he, how the police department is open to Black members um, at the same time as they are, um, have the numbers of members of Black NYPD officers who are actually uh, um, join the NYPD is very low. And then for people who are in the police department, they experience discrimination within the department as well. So, but because they have this perception um, that the, or this kind of awareness that the perception of equity is important, there are these kind of public statements of saying like, well, we do want more black members of the NYPD. Um, so anyway, all of that is to say that I think the the way that policing is um, crafted under LaGuardia is a, is a really significant break from how it operated before. And it is for him a very important part of putting that um, political vision into practice. And I think that political vision is still really influential um, in American urban politics and American liberal politics, and so it, that's part of why I wanted to explore it in the
1: book. Yeah, and it's really important. I, I think that many folks today would understand policing as important in politics, but they would be inclined to say, "Yeah, it's important to pol- the politics of the right." Um, like if you wanted to say that, you know, like if you were just to reference Law and Order as sort of a piece of political re- rhetoric most would probably immediately think of the right. And there's been some good work by historians that have pointed out the extent to which it's um, as much a part of the politics of the left as well. Um, uh, Like Elizabeth Hinton's work on LBJ is a prominent example that of course comes to mind. and so you you mentioned law and order liberalism that that term a few times in the last answer that you gave. Um, but it's obviously a really important sort of foundational part of what the book is arguing. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could just like succinctly give us a definition of what your vision of what law and order liberalism is exactly. Um, and then also why do we have this misconception about law and order being tied just to conservatism? Um, Right. And, and how does this work help us to sort of better understand its relationship to all of American politics, not just a particular uh, portion of it? Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Yeah. So I would describe law and order liberalism as sort of what um, the idea that I was just explaining. So the idea that, Um, everyone, that people deserve kind of an equitable relationship to Mm -hmm. the state, um, but that the um, effects of the state's entities on different branches of the populace um, can be dramatically different um, based on social identities of race and class and gender. Um, So I think the kind of key and nationality and, and, you know, many other kind of vectors of difference. But so I think the key kind of core element is this, um, this kind of conception of equity with a disparate and often violent result that is um, not uniform across the population. Awesome. Um, And, and as far as the why why do we have this like common association between law and order and the right that was that was the second question right
1: yeah and sort of how this helps us understand that uh, how does history troubles that that conception mm-hmm.
0: yeah i mean i, I think look, part of the reason why we have that association is because um in contemporary political discourse the right sort of proactively takes up that mantle more explicitly um and i think you know when we write histories we can't help but write them from the present and so our experiences of the present do inform the questions we ask about the past and how we understand them um and so i think you know initially when people were thinking about crime and policing and mass incarceration you know you do think about the hard right and those the arguments um in support of state violence and racist policing and kind of explore those which have, have an important history um but I also think there is this kind of other element to it which is sort of like why has so little changed I mean this is kind of a a a common thread throughout historiographies of policing. Like historians are always thinking about change over time. And there are some historians who are sort of like the history of policing in America is, is really one of racist violence and continuity and resistance. Um, and so I think that um, looking at the histories of democratic, which I wouldn't always ass- necessarily associate with left, but the way that democratic, Um, political figures have embraced these policies, um, uh, you know, rhetoric also, but the the policies and practices themselves as well, um, helps us understand why it is so hard to make change and why um, these policies seem quite intractable in a lot of ways. And what I feel like I saw in researching this book is that the kind of, the very model of policing that we live with now, and that is is extremely normalized now, and that I think people kind of think of as always being there, but is is quite new, less than a hundred years old. Um, this model of a nonpartisan, professional, multi-gender, mixed race uh, police department that's charged with intense surveillance of racialized communities. Um, of youth and of um, working class people to some extent in some areas as well, um, that that dates to this period. This is when that emerges um, and that is, it's very new um, or it's relatively recent. And it is um, that since the model of policing we're familiar with has been in existence, it has been flawed in many of the ways that we're familiar with today. Um, And if we were to sort of look through recent American history to try to find a moment when policing was better, which is not to say that it hasn't changed over time um, and that there haven't been significant alterations. But I think if we were to look through time and try to find a moment, you know, the 1930s were a moment when the state was was expanding and producing a lot of really essential and really incredible social services um, in a way that we have not seen really since then mm-hmm. um, and it was a moment of massive um, expansion in public infrastructure, you know so many of like pools, parks what you know all of these built environment around New York City that the public still uses a lot of it dates back to this period. so you know this is a moment when in a lot of ways, Um, public life was becoming more inclusive, more expansive um, and better for people. And so if there was kind of a moment when policing would have been better, it could have been, you know, you think that maybe it would have been this moment. But what we see instead is that while these other parts of the state are expanding, so too is expanding this mode of surveillance and criminalization and punitive um, exclusions and it becomes part of the way that, um, certain people are kind of carved out of acceptable public life. So it's kind of like, there are these new pubs, there are new parks and we want, and this is another part of LaGuardia's politics where it's like, um, regular New Yorkers deserve to have a vibrant, full public life. And that shouldn't be impeded on by these criminals or crooks or delinquents. Those people should be driven out because they um, worsen life for the regular non-criminals. And the way that those people are described and created, what kind of what gets put into those buckets is very racialized, very gendered, and very class-based. And that to some extent, that language um, still motivates the way that that Democratic mayors talk about crime today by saying that, like, well, working class, you know, like in New York, Eric Adams will say, you know, black outer borough communities want more police. That's why they deserve, you know, a heavier police presence. Um, and and that's part of the responsibilities of government is to create safety for those people. And then, you know, members of those communities are the same people who are criminalized. And um, what I saw in the research for my book, which a lot of other historians have also argued, like particularly with Harris, is that um, when you look at heavily policed Black communities, there is never kind of one political um, orientation. There are some... Uh, property owners and store owners and landlords who are saying, we want more police, we want a heavier police presence. Some of those people are then themselves still victims of police brutality and violence. Um, And then there are other people in those communities who are saying, we don't want a heavier police presence. We are being attacked, we're being criminalized. Our children are being beaten on the subways. Um, We want other things. And even the people who are saying, we want a heavier police presence, we're always also saying, saying that in concert with we want better schools. We want equitable funding for all of our um, neighborhood public services. We want parks. We want all of these things. And the only way that the state really responded for the most part was with more police.
1: So I was, I'm going to, I was saving this question for a little bit later, but that segue is so good that I'll, I'll jump to it now. Um, And then we'll come back to, uh, the next thing I was going to ask about was uh, how gender is impacting policing. Um, But I'm going to come circle back to that um and of course that may be a part of the answer here as well but you have this 1942 survey that you talk about in a few different spots and you talk about some responses to it like two percent of black residents said they would go to police if they couldn't get their rights right a really low percentage 34 to 45 percent say that the country should be more concerned with establishing democracy at home instead of defeating enemies ab- abroad and i wanted to i'm bringing some of those data points in because a lot of our popular discourse and some scholarship make pretty sweeping claims about like what the quote unquote black community wants vis-a-vis policing, um, which is problematic for a lot of the reasons that you just said. Right, it's not a, a it's opinion is not homogenous, right? Um, but you have this chapter on policing nightlife in Harlem and and resistance to that policing that I think is a really good case study if you will on on the relationship between predominantly black urban spaces and neighborhoods and the way they're interacting with police and at times calling for more police protection at times resisting the presence of police in ways that really complicate that relationship that that speaks to not only the history but how we talk about policing and race today so that's all sort of a lead up to asking you if you could talk a little bit more about that chapter on harlem and, and what some of the big takeaways are for us in the in both the history and how we're talking about policing.
0: Harlem was one of the neighborhoods in the city that was most criminalized during this period. Um, and it was both because it was the city's most prominent Black neighborhood, but also um, because it was a center for nightlife, which was connected to its identity as a Black neighborhood because of the kind of racist history of the interconnections between leisure scapes and race and um in the years before the time period that I write about. Um, but so, so the discourse from um, particularly Louis Valentine, the police commissioner is very like, Harlem is so dangerous. Even my own police officers are not safe there. We need a really heavy police presence there. Um, and the way that Harlem residents responded to that police presence, as you're saying, varied. It was um, diverse across different members of the community, um, and also ran throughout my different chapters. So, um, you know, for example, there was a big concern for a lot of Harlem parents was the ways that their children were victimized by police violence and brutality, um, because that was quite common um, for Black children in this time period. In some instances, just kind of harassment, and in other instances, like, really... Um, disturbing ambitious assaults. Um, And but so one of the ways that I sort of how I chose to to organize the way that I was discussing that in the book was um, to focus partly on the criminalization of the Savoy Ballroom in Harlem. And part of the reason why I wanted to focus on that is because so the, the time period that I wrote about in the book LaGuardia's administration is basically book ended by two moments of mass um uprising in Harlem against partly motivated uh, by racist and violent policing um and so there's one in 1935 and one in 1943 that people are um pretty familiar with and I wanted to um to look at the kind of day-to-day policing that produced those moments of um, of mass protest and uprising and not just look at the kind of exceptional moment itself but the sort of regular experiences that predated it um, and this these dynamics around the Savoy Ballroom ended up being very, illustrative of a lot of the kind of themes that I was looking at in the book. And so this was um, one of the city's most well-known nightclubs. And it was also <laughs> one of the only spaces where there was kind of regular and accepted interracial socializing during in the city during this period um, because nightlife was still intensely racially segregated. And because of that, um, it was under frequent surveillance by the NYPD throughout the 1930s Um, and the in this and it ultimately is closed down um, during the war because there are accusations that enlisted men are meeting sex workers there and contracting venereal diseases and in the subsequent hearings to try to get it reopened the managers and owners talk about how um, the NYPD has been trying to close them down for years and how they've actually been trying to steer white sailors and soldiers away from the nightclub so that the police presence will be less intense, illustrating that they know that it's the interracial mi- like um, mixing that is driving the police surveillance and um, the police presence. And so, so it's under surveillance throughout the 1930s illustrating that um you know, the concerns that kind of become most intense during the war are present previously. Um, And there's also interestingly, um, the mayor and his commissioner of licenses, uh, Paul Moss had also been trying to close down burlesque theaters throughout the city in the 1930s and actually um, were taken to court and lost because it was an infringement on civil liberties. And then during the war, they're able to win because they're saying that soldiers and sailors are going to these burlesque clubs and their morals are um, impaired. And so so the Savoy is targeted as this um, space of interracial socializing and nightlife. Um, (coughs) And there was um, intense surveillance Um, at the nightclub throughout the war years. Um, And one of the dynamics that I, that I saw where I found some of my sources was through health department records um, where men who um, thought they had sexually transmitted infections would go to health clinics um, for treatment. And they would then be interrogated about where, um, about the, what they called the source of their infection, meaning who they got they think they contracted their sexually transmitted infection from. Um, And then they would give some sort of name or description and the health department would then share that with the NYPD to follow up on. Um, But the way that men were sort of, both enlisted men and kind of civilians, um, were educated to think about venereal diseases during this period, was informed by these racist and sexist ideas of um contagion and um disease. And so there was also this kind of idea that um sexually transmitted infections basically went from women to men. Um, so in a lot of these reports, they would name women that they met at the Savoy. Um, and the, actually the manager of the Savoy later said that he thought they would just name it because that was a place that the NYPD knew of. And so it was like an easy place to sort of say, that's where, that's where I met somebody. So but the, so there's this body of sources that like points to the Savoy um, and that is informed, I think, by these larger racist and sexist ideas about contagion and disease. And then that ju- then becomes justification for the surveillance. Um, and then once you have the, that intense surveillance, then, you know, eventually they're going to find something that is going to work for them. So, um, at, so eventually they they, you know, one of the surveilling officers sees some, an interaction and, um, describes it as seeing somebody getting picked up by sex workers, the Savoy is closed down. And then there is, um, this mass campaign from, black Harlem residents um, to kind of to reopen the Savoy, but also to accurately describe the role that it played in Harlem and the, the reason why it was closed down and why um, it was so intensely surveilled. And so um, one of my favorite characters in my book is um, the novelist Anne Petrie, who um, during this time had not yet written her first famous novel, The Street, and was a reporter for um, the left-wing Black newspaper, The People's Voice, that was started by Adam Clayton Powell, Jr. And so she, during this time, she writes an open letter to LaGuardia saying um, the Savoy nightclub played an important, it was a community meeting space. It played a really important role in the Harlem neighborhoods and in the community. And I mean, she didn't, you know, the letter is more succinct than this, but um, it was the biggest kind of open space in the community. and so a lot of uh, fundraisers will be held there, which is really important for a community that is denied equitable funding by the city and in which um, you know, there is less concentrated wealth than in white communities. Um, so the fundraising is important and it played a very uh, an important social role in the community. Um, so she talks about that role. She talks about um, LaGuardia's response to the closing of the Savoy, which was basically just to kind of throw up his hands and say, well, I can't really do anything about it. And she, um, in a really smart way in this letter, says, well, you're doing something about all of these other problems in the city. You're such an engaged and hands-on mayor. And yet with this thing, you say you can't do anything. And is that because the Savoy is in a Black community. Right. Um, and then she also talks about the way that black women, um, that the, the justification for closing the Savoy, the Savoy is based on this, um, racist idea of black women as sex workers and venereal dis- disease carriers. Um, and the letter, um, is accompanied by a picture of, um, black women volunteers, um, in uh, holding some kind of um, charity event, um, black women volunteers in the um, in the army, um, but they're you know dressed up very properly in their outfits and um, to show kind of you know there's this idea that black women are not contributing to the war effort and are in fact undermining it through these criminal and and um, kind of disease carrying ways, but actually look kind of here is the accurate depiction and she says something like we picked this image from you know there are hundreds of images like it that we could have used um and that illustrates another theme that kind of runs throughout some of the activism which is um black women saying um we refuse to be labeled in this racist way as sex workers as venereal disease carriers um we are contributing to the war effort we are kind of Um, we're not going to be categorized in that way, essentially. And so that becomes a a key part of the campaign against the Savoy, but it's not, it's not successful. I mean, the Savoy is closed down for a lot longer than a lot of other nightclubs that were closed during that same um, period. Ultimately, it does reopen, but then when it reopens, the managers say, we're going to be much more aggressive about preventing enlisted men from coming in and talking to women. We're going to try to kind of um, incorporate some of the city's policing practices into more aggressively into the way that we run the nightclub in in order to um, kind of assuage the NYPD's intense focus on them. Um, so that was is kind of one illustrative dynamic. I also um, look at the way that racist policing plays out in other parts of the city. and so another area that was um, a, a really interesting, Illustration of the kind of wartime dynamics for me was um what happened on the northeastern tip of Staten Island, where there was a number of black soldiers were sent to this army facility there. And it was a predominantly white neighborhood um, that they were sent into. And the district attorney there starts. Um, complaining to the press and to the mayor and saying that there's a crime wave that's being started by the black soldiers who are working at this um, army facility. And it becomes um, this kind of big story. The The district attorney is essentially trying to use it to build up his own um, political reputation. Um, but A number of black soldiers are arrested Um, there. It kind of provokes violence and um, hostility from the white residents who live in the area around it. And it leads to this dynamic that was very surprising and interesting to me in which there are undercover investigators from um, the Army, the National NAACP and the um, a committee that the mayor creates because he's concerned about racial unrest, not about um, not as much about racism and lack of civil rights, but about the potential for conflict over that. Called the mayor's committee on unity, and so they each of those groups sends an undercover investigator to sort of circulate in this area and ask people questions about like what's going on there, um, but you and the city's black newspapers from Harlem um, and from Brooklyn send send investigators and send journalists there to cover the story, um, because it's this clear illustration of the way that even black enlisted men are targeted as criminals and as supposedly undermining the war effort uh, by threatening white residents, at, even while they are doing their yeah. job in the military. Um, and you have these white Staten Island reps representatives in city council who are saying, um, we are, we are contributing to the war effort. Our families are, um, you know, are living in this area around the army facility. And well, you know, our, well, our men are at war. Our families are being victimized and put in peril by these right. black criminals. And so it's like, These civilian residents are trying to mobilize, uh, well, they're they're kind of right-wing political representatives, to be fair, are trying to mobilize this rhetoric of wartime participation and citizenship um, in an exclusively white way against the Black soldiers who are stationed there, um, who then, when they were um, talking to Black newspapers, talked about feeling like prisoners of war because they were so intensely um, surveilled by the NYPD when they left army facilities and then also patrolled um, by military police on the, um, when they were in the army facility. So that was another way that some of those um, racial politics are playing out during this period.
1: So one of the other ways that the politics of the wartime politics play out is uh, along gender lines and in, in a really profound way that comes out in the book. Um, it, you know, the policing of, of women and especially the policing of women, sex workers um, has long been seen as a a threat to society, et cetera, especially by police. And it's motivated a lot of policing. Um, But that gets intensified in a particular kind of way in the wartime context, it seems in this book. Um, And so you have this chapter on policing sex workers. And then you also, it sort of juxtaposes with this other chapter on policing, mostly male gamblers and male soldiers in, in ways that um, there's differences in, in, along racial lines, et cetera, there also. Um, so I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more because we haven't, we, we've talked about it, but we haven't highlighted it enough, I don't think, um, is how gender shapes these different modes of policing and, and the politics of policing during wartime. Anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that underlies um, all of that is the is just the sort of simple fact that men were drafted into the war, into the military and women were not. Um, And that was illustrative of this idea that male labor, both in the armed forces and in uh, production at home, was the kind of central social resource that was fueling the war effort. And women's labor was peripheral. Um, It could contribute and it could support Um, And of course, then this is not to say that women, you know, weren't in the armed services they were, but they weren't conceived of as foundational in the same way. Um, And so that kind of foundational division undergirds a lot of the way that policing is mobilized during the war. And so for the male gamblers, you have this like, it's, I mean, it's intensely racialized as well um within those kind of that branching off of those two different um sectors but um so for so for men the kind of when you when i was looking at the way that and part of the reason why i wrote that chapter about gambling is because i wanted to to i was interested in women's experiences but i also wanted to think about how gender and citizenship informed men's experiences as well in the way that policing um happened for men because men have gender too. Um so and what was interesting to me in that in looking at the way that gamblers were policed is that it was totally um for white men it was totally bifurcated based on if you were in the military or not. And so like there are, you know once there is a curfew established the directive um, to the NYPD is if, if if you find enlisted men in a place after curfew, send them home. And if you find civilian men, you can take them in. Um, and so because the, the idea is, and part of the justification actually for policing gamblers is we have to protect enlisted men who are serving, who are contributing um, to the war effort from being preyed upon by these predatory gamblers. Um, and so the idea is like we they want to preserve this the resources of enlisted men. They don't want to arrest them and then, you know, they're spending how many days in jail and then going before a court, et cetera. Like they want to avoid that uh, because their labor is important and significant. But because um, black men are so intensely criminalized, even if they're in the military, they are still targeted um and you know and assaulted in the case of the harlem uprising um somebody you know in uniform is um attacked by the police and as and, and as i just described you know there's this whole episode where men serving in the military um in on in Staten island are criminalized just just for being there essentially um, and And they actually talk about how they are treated worse than the Italian prisoners of war that they're serving alongside. Um, but so, um, so for men, that kind of the there's this kind of racialized and bifurcated idea, but the the underlying ethos is kind of is that that resource, that human resource is an essential part of the war effort. Um, whereas for women, they are kind of, are much more framed as a potential sexual threat who could undermine the war effort by either impairing the morality of enlisted men or by, um, giving them sexually transmitted infections. Um, and so, you know, I, I anti-prostitution policing and anti-juvenile delinquency policing was already, uh, a big priority for LaGuardia and Valentine in the 1930s. Um, and LaGuardia is somebody who supports the wartime measures to intensify policing of prostitution. He testifies in favor of the May Act, which made uh, sex work near a military installation of federal crime. And he actually argues that it should be that the law should be stronger and um, harsher. Um, so they so that was already a priority for them, but during the war, again, it becomes this issue of national security and they, there is new, um, federal attention and federal support, um, thrown at this, thrown at the, the pro the supposed problem. Um, and what's, what is interesting, one element of this that was really interesting to me was that, um, so, you know, women who were arrested for sex work or girls who were, there's kind of a, a lot of crossover with the sexual policing of adult women and of, girls and young women, um, who were juveniles and, um, and in either case, women and girls could be forcibly tested for venereal diseases, um, whether they were convicted of sex or or not. So just before, prior to conviction, um, just the accusation was enough. Uh, but what was what is really interesting is that I found all these letters from the doctors who were doing those testing, talking about how they didn't know how to read these tests, the the laboratory tests on women's bodies, and saying like, "Well, you're looking for discharge, but it's really hard to know like what kind and what is." And they talk about how in 94 instances of 94 percent of roughly something like that, 94 percent of the cases where. Um, women were then judged to have sexually transmitted infections and forcibly sent to one of the city's public hospitals for venereal disease treatment, um, which is what happened if they couldn't prove that they could pay for their own treatment at home. And then they would have to stay there for a period of months to undergo this kind of prolonged and painful and ineffective treatment. Um, But in a vast majority of the cases where women were sent to those hospitals, they were sent after a, a laboratory test that was read as negative, but the social um, factors that were also taken into account, m- predominantly meaning their arrest in a lot of instances, um, not whether or not they were convicted, then meant that they were deemed to be infectious. Um, and so it's interesting to see that moment of kind of the way that doctors themselves are also part of this social construction of disease um, which is interesting to be writing about at the same time as, you know, we were all living through the mm-hmm. COVID pandemic and kind of un- thinking about how to understand those modes of infection and disease as well.
1: Great. Well, I think that we've probably taken up a lot of your time and and that's a pretty good place to end. So a final question that we always like to ask is what are you working on now that you might like to share with us?
0: Um, That's a great question. I will say I am um, I'm still working on promoting this book. Um, And, you know, as some of you as a young kid, like taking a little bit of a break, but um, I am starting to think about my next project. And I'm thinking um, I continue to be interested in women's lives and experiences in relation to the carceral state um, and there are a few women in this story who kind of have stayed with me since I finished writing it. And I'm thinking about exploring the possibility of doing a kind of dual biography between cool. women in different positions of the carceral state and sort of how they're interacting with each other and with these modes of punitive power.
1: Well, that sounds like a fantastic project and and certainly a well-deserved break after this excellent book as well. So. Thank you. And we'll look forward to seeing that down the road. Um, So thank you again for joining us. Uh, Again, Emily Brooks's new book is Gotham's War Within a War, Policing and the Birth of Law and Order Liberalism in World War II era New York City. And it is out now with University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Brooks, thank you so much for being with us on New Books Network.
0: Thank you so much, Jeff.